I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. We are back. Today's guest is Professor Sarah Seeger. She is the Professor of Planetary Science and Professor of Physics at MIT. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, great. So we start off every episode with the very easy question of what is it that you do? Well, I'm a professor of planetary science and physics at MIT. I make computer models to understand atmospheres of exoplanets far away. And the favorite part of my job is trying to conceive of what kind of gases might be produced by alien life forms, microbial life far away on a distant world, and to work with models of space telescopes to try to figure out how we're going to detect that life in the future. So what kind of, I guess if you're sitting there, as someone who doesn't have an astronomy background, um, when you say detect gases from alien life forms, what types of gases are we trying to look for? Well, let's back up a minute and talk about our own Earth. And on our planet, we all know there's an atmosphere and there's air that we breathe, but I guess most people don't usually pause to think much about it. But as humans, we need oxygen to survive. And we're also breathing out carbon dioxide. Um, plants and photosynthetic bacteria make oxygen. And most people might know that our atmosphere is made of 20% oxygen by volume. But most people don't know that without plants and other life, our atmosphere should have no oxygen. So wait, wait, oxygen, wait, 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 hold on, can I type? <laughs> so if without sure. plant life, we would not have any oxygen in our atmosphere naturally? Is that what you're saying? Well, without, almost, without plants and photosynthetic Ember. bacteria. Okay. So yes, without life, we would have no oxygen. Oh, interesting. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Continue. <laughs> well, what it, what it just means is that you know, we've um, made this gas from life. And just to flip it around a little, we're kind of hoping if there are any, um, it's kind of sounds a bit out there, but imagine that someone's looking at us from far away and they see oxygen in our atmosphere and they know basic chemistry and physics, they'll realize that oxygen shouldn't be there because it's a highly reactive gas and it should really be reacting away immediately. So that's what one of the gases we're hoping to look for. How did you start on this to, to look in this general direction? What, why this kind of research? What interests you about it? Well, as they say, timing is everything. And when <laughs> yeah. I was in graduate school, that was a long time ago, I was working on astronomy for my PhD research. And actually, just at that time, in the mid-1990s, the first exoplanets, that's planets orbiting stars other than our sun, uh, were actually announced. The first planet orbiting a sun-like star other than our own sun uh, was announced. And so I was looking around for a thesis after I was completing my master's degree and trying to figure out what I should do next when, voila, there are these planets out there, hot giant planets like Jupiter, but they were crazy planets. They were orbiting far closer to their star than Mercury is to our sun. And so I decided to work on them. My PhD advisor said, do you want to work on these? And not really knowing any better, I said, sure. <laughs> Does that mean you just, there wasn't much to work with at the point? Like you were sort of starting from, hey, we know these things exist. Now learn the rest of it. I mean, is that how basic you yes. were? That's how basic it was. But as you know, being in science, we always build upon other things. So I didn't have no tools at all, even though the objects were very brand new and we didn't understand everything about much about them. We already knew about atmospheres of stars 
And there are cooler things like failed stars. We're called, we call them brown dwarfs. We have Jupiter, of course, and Earth's atmosphere. So you can think of it like it, taking tools we had, but having to uh, forge a way forward for a brand new type of object. So, so how do you go about building a model for a planet or inner or exoplanet, I suppose? Well, one way you can do it is think of it like a recipe. Like, actually, I've been doing a lot of cooking lately, unfortunately, <laughs> because my husband who cooks, um, he does all the cooking and shopping. He's away right now at a star party where amateur astronomers get together uh, in um, kind of festivals or astronomy events. Oh, cool. And in this particular one's in the Florida Keys. So he drove down to Florida, which is a two or three day drive. And he's with a whole bunch of his friends and a few hundred people. And what they do is they stay up all night um, imaging the sky taking pictures and looking through their telescope. So anyway, it's like a recipe. So imagine you were saying, well, how do you make bread? Well, you need some flour um, and some sugar and some kind of fat. Maybe it's butter or oil or both. I'm kind of making this up as I go along because I haven't made bread in a long time. <laughs> well, that, that's not like left that, on so. your kitchen after your husband's out of town. The bread is not high on the list of things um, to do. Actually, well, it's mostly because of one of my kids. He's really behind all this. He's 11 and he's been, um, like right now as we're speaking, they're, we just got back from the grocery store and the kids are uh, making a lime, some kind of lime garlic chicken. So they're making the sauce now, so they have to marinate it. So we'll see what happens. Oh, but nice. <laughs> So in terms of these atmospheres, well, there's definitely the same type of thing. There's a sort of more or less standard recipe, but just like any good cook, it's up to me to figure out what I've got to put in it to make it right. So we would start with... Um, well, oddly enough, like a blank computer screen, <laughs> but no, we'd start with, um, we have to make a guess at the temperature and the pressure of the planet. You know, like on our earth, our temperature is, let's say, um, I don't know what it is where you are today. It's about 50 degrees here. So we imagine a temperature, but it changes in the, as you go up in the atmosphere. If you fly through the atmosphere, you hike up Mount Everest, the temperature is changing. So you have to put in a kind of temperature structure. Um, as according to pressure or height above the surface, you have to think about what are the elements in the atmosphere. And given that temperature and pressure, which molecules would form based on chemical equilibrium. And you sort of step through it that way. And when you have a kind of quasi-solution, you run your computer, which is solving a bunch of equations. And, you know, your first guess will probably not be the right guess that they all fit together properly. And so the computer will, what we call, iterate. It'll keep trying a solution until the errors get smaller and smaller, until it settles on something. However, for these exoplanets, we sometimes know nothing about them. So we might have to try a different recipe altogether, like for cake instead of bread. <laughs> and we have a bunch of different, you know, um, a bunch of different, let's say, templates or a library full of, um, you know, these imagined planet atmospheres. And then when we get real data, we confront our atmospheres with real data and we see which ones sort of survive the test and that's how we work forward to both predict what we should look for and then try to interpret the data we do get. Do you, do you get more, have you gotten more data? I mean, obviously you're saying when you were in grad school, they just discovered these exoplanets. Is there more data coming in pretty regularly or are we dependent upon? Well, there is now. Oh, there so, is. Okay. Yeah. Now we're, so what happened was I made models and because no one, hardly anybody worked on it at the time when I was a student and postdoc. I actually got to invent many of the methods that are used now to make models of atmospheres. And now it's about 20 years later. And honestly, you'd be so surprised how busy the field is. Most of the data uh, for exoplanet atmospheres um, comes from the Hubble Space Telescope, which is kind of a workhorse telescope that's used for a lot of different things in astronomy. 
but people are observing atmospheres. It's still not compared to most other fields of science and other people you get on the show. Like, it's not going to be great data. There's not a lot of it, but nonetheless, it is data. And we do study atmospheres of other planets. That's fascinating. Okay, this might be a stupid question. Um, <laughs> forgive me, because I'm just an engineer. <laughs> just <laughs> um, an engineer. But, okay, so let's say Hubble brings, you get these pictures from Hubble. How do you determine what the gas components are or what, what you're seeing? planets are made of? Just Yeah, just from pictures. Right. Well, in this case, it's not so much a picture as, let me think of how to explain this for a minute. Um, it's specifically data. We're looking at data. And specifically, what we're studying are a very special type of planet. They're called transiting planets. And these planets are aligned in a lucky fashion so that they go in front of their star, as seen from the telescope. And when that planet goes in front of the star, it actually blocks out starlight, just a tiny amount. And the star that we're looking at, it's just a point of light. But that point of light drops just a tiny, tiny amount. And furthermore, the atmosphere blocks out even a more minuscule amount of light. And we look at the amount of light blocked at different wavelengths. And in that way, I want you to think about like shining a flashlight through a fog, where the fog is the atmosphere. And if one of you was shining the flashlight and the other one was standing across the fog, measuring the light, you would see that some light makes it through and some doesn't. And we're effectively doing that where the sun is like the, the star is like the giant flashlight, the planet, the distant exoplanet atmosphere is like the fog. And the Hubble is like the person making the measurement. And we're trying to see which kind of light makes it through the atmosphere and which doesn't. And that's our data. And once we have that data, we compare it to models or, if you want to get even more basic, laboratory measurements of gases. Because one fascinating thing about uh, chemistry and physics is that most gases have individual um, spectra. They have, it's like individual fingerprints. Each gas has its own special fingerprint in how it absorbs light and at which wavelengths. And that's how we do it, basically. How, how have you, <laughs> I feel like I'm going back to the basics. How do you know what you're seeing means this type of gas? Like, do we test that well, locally or is, is that something that's sort of determined yes, elsewhere? Uh -huh. Oh, okay. Both, both, both. So what you have to do and is go back to, I'm not sure how easy or hard this is for you or anyone listening, but <laughs> if you do think back sometimes like to high school physics mm -hmm. or high school chemistry, Lots of us, and I only remember this personally because I do it today, like for my students or for outreach, but, you know, people would have like a Bunsen burner and they would drop sodium in it mm -hmm. and then the whole thing lights up in a certain way. So oh, we yes, do, I remember yes, that. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes they even give you a, a slide, like a slide to hold up and you look through it and it act that actually splits the light up and you can actually see um, where the light is missing or where there's added light. So in fact... Yeah, people have been, excuse me, in fact, people have been studying this for decades. And for many common gases, we know, uh, based on laboratory measurements, not as simple as the Bunsen burner one, but people will make gla glass tubes, fill it with the pure gas, um, literally have a light on one end, and then a recorder on the other end, and they'll see what goes through. And people have been doing this for half a century or more, actually. And by the way, we also, um, people also do, for better measurements, very, very detailed computer models involving how molecules rotate and vibrate and how electrons and atoms move around. Sarah, you'd mentioned that, um, you know, on Earth, you know, we can, we know that there's life because we can detect oxygen. Um, how do we know that in, if we're trying to find alien life on other planets, that it's going to be oxygen that we're looking for? Or is it some other combination of gases? 
That's a great question. And the funny thing is you came up to speed so quickly <laughs> for, um, you know, for asking back the basics. And now you've asked like essentially what is the billion dollar oh, question. Oh, no. <laughs> because yes. the new telescopes, because the new telescopes um, that we're imagining and that we're, are being built and are being launched, that's how much they cost. Billions. So... Yeah, that's a big number. So we're, we're not sure, actually. So I gave you the simplest thing. We'd like to see oxygen. But even if we find oxygen, we won't know for sure if it's made by life because these planets are very far away. And uh, yeah, so we, people think a lot about this. You know, under what other gases will they need? They'd like to see water vapor. That's a sign of liquid water oceans. And all life on we know it needs liquid water. There are some gases, uh, other gases too. So to, you know, without... I'm sort of being a bit vague here, but we don't really know what the answer is. We don't know which gases are best, which combination of gases, which other gases. You know, when you walk into pine forests and you smell all those beautiful smells, those are all technically biosignature gases. Those are gases produced by trees, right, that are going off into the atmosphere, and you can smell them. But those ones aren't made in huge quantities like oxygen is. But who knows? Maybe in another world, you know, your tree is producing a huge amount of isoprene, for example, and that is detectable. So we're working all this out now. But just like the example I gave you earlier with the bread and the cake and everything in between, we hope we can sort of try to figure everything out in advance of getting data. And that when we get data, um, in the best case scenario, we'll just, we'll have actual data that has suggestions of gases that don't belong that we can sort through. In terms of of figuring these things out and and knowing what you're looking for, is the technology, I mean, you've been working with this for for 20 years, as you said, the technology changing, or is it really just the data that you have to input into what you've already been working on that's changing? Um, It's definitely the technology. And even though uh, it's definitely the technology that's changing, and it's changing because people are pushing it for exoplanets and astronomy and because of other new inventions in detector or other new improvements in, de- in uh, detector technology and other things. Because the thing is, I think it's like many fields of science, a better instrument gets you better data. Mm-hmm. And although right now we're studying atmospheres, they're mostly for giant planets or for some kind of smaller planets in unique cases, but we're really waiting for uh, new telescopes to be launched that can do a better job that do involve new technology. Are there some on the horizon to do that or are we still not sure yet? Yes, actually. There's one called the James Webb Space Telescope. That is uh, what we call the next generation, it used to be called the next generation Hubble Space Telescope. No, it used to be called the next generation Space Telescope, meaning the next Hubble. And it's um, not quite like Hubble, though. It's much bigger. It works in the infrared, and it's going to be sent very, very far from Earth, where the sky is the sky where the uh, when you look out there's no earth that's hot and bright so it's great for astronomy for for things like Hubble and for James Webb do you have to uh, reserve time on it in order to have it point toward a certain location in space or are you just taking data from whenever it gets data right well it's a more complicated process because many um, scientists or engineers they have a lab and they have equipment in their lab But the James Webb Space Telescope, like Hubble, is kind of like a shared laboratory. It's like a shared experiment. So what happens is astronomers have to propose. You write a proposal that you want to use the telescope for a specific object at a specific time. And once a year or so, a giant committee full of your peers meets and they rank the proposals. (laughs) So then if your proposal is selected as being really worthy, then you'll get time on the telescope. And then eventually the time will be scheduled for you and then your data will come down by computer to your office. And is that data uh, 
a shared resource for other scientists as well, or is that uh, the lab's proprietary data? Well, usually they'll let you keep it proprietary for a few months to a year, Mm -hmm. and then it becomes public, and then it becomes archived. So even you, for example, if you decided you wanted to work in this field, you could. uh, It's kind of hard, but eventually (laughs) download the Hubble data, and you could look at the Hubble data, and you could work on it. So yeah, it's a resource for everybody. But I, maybe I could switch gears for one second because sure. that was funny but hard. But there are other areas of exoplanet science where people can actually help and find things. And there's a, have you talked about this website called Zooniverse? No, no, I've heard of it. Oh, you've got to check it out. Zooniverse. It's actually crowdsourcing where you can do all sorts of things. Um, I just watched one in biology for C. elegans. And you can literally you watch them lay eggs. And they're wanting you to look through because um, humans are still better than computers right. at many tasks. And so you watch them lay an egg and you just click on it when it looks like it laid an egg. So, yeah, it's kind of, that was a funny one. But when I looked to sign up to do that one, they had already, the crowdsourced users had already gone through all their data. So they don't need help (laughs) on that. I want to see the eggs. I know. I wanted to do that one. But there's one for planets called Planet Hunters. And in this particular case, what they have is data from a space telescope. It's called, it's not Hubble. It's called the Kepler Space Telescope. It's a special telescope that stares at a patch of the sky for about 80 days at a time. And it takes data on hundred, like, I don't know, tens of thousands to hundred thousand stars. And it's measuring the brightness of the stars for that whole time, every, you know, 30 minutes or so. And your job is to look at the data and see if you see a drop in brightness, which might be a planet going in front of the star. Remember, we don't see the star, we don't see a picture of the planet, you just see that that starlight drops a tiny amount. And it trains you, so you get to try out, you know, it'll guide you through some training, some exercises. And yeah, and it, you, you click on stuff, and it does about 30-day segments, and then it gets sent back. And they have a lot of people look at the same data sections, you know, just in case some people make a mistake. <laughs> then they have um, the most, you know, they take like the average or something. And would that data help you maybe in some of the stuff you're working on, or is it is it more for other types of research? Um, it doesn't help me personally, mm-hmm. but I was just giving you a yeah. contrast to, you know, you can download Hubble data, but you can do these other things. Mm-hmm. All right. So this might probably be a question that you have, have heard a lot from non-specialists. Um, how likely are we to find life on exoplanets? Well, that's a good question. And that one, it's, there's no, unfortunately, there's no scientific answer to that. I mean, we can say that small rocky worlds appear to be very common. You know, already we know about thousands of exoplanets orbiting stars other than our sun. We know that the rocky planets are common. We know that wherever we look in astronomy, out in the spaces between stars, on other moons and other worlds, we know that the ingredients for life are very common. But beyond that, it would just be completely speculative to say whether or not there's actually life out there. Is there any way, I mean... Is there any way to know? I mean, you'd have to actually visit, right? I mean, (laughs) there's no way to be able to be pretty certain that there is something there. Well, you know what? If we saw oxygen on another world and we saw, you know, by using our space telescopes to look remotely, we saw oxygen and we saw water vapor and we saw a number, a few other things. We wouldn't be 100% sure, but I think we'd be pretty sure. You'd be confident when I say there's probably some, maybe likely, possibly something there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a good thing you're an engineer and scientist, so you get the, the hedging of everything. Wording. Well, well, we might even be able to give you a probability. You know, I'm 50% sure. I'm 90% sure. I'm 95% sure. So I think that's going to be incredible. But you're right. We'll never be 100% sure unless we can 
send a probe there, or if there are aliens there sending us a radio message, we'll never be 100% sure. I want to back up a little bit and and sort of get to, uh, you know, origin story. Like, how did you, were you always interested in science and astronomy? Well, I was always interested in astronomy. Punctuated throughout my childhood, I remember just being interested in the moon. I remember seeing the night sky and the huge numbers of stars out there. But I wasn't the kids like that I meet today who are just like so into science and always reading about science and dragging their mom to lectures. <laughs> I wasn't that kid. So for a long time, I just did whatever. I won't say normal kids do, but I didn't pay attention in school for many years. So I always kind of liked science. I think I always had a very, I was always trying to figure things out in that sense. Like today, though, kids are going to like computer camp in the summer and STEM this and STEM right. that. You know, we never had that kind of thing when I was a kid. What do you think... Um would be the biggest help for you sort of in your research and what you're working on going forward? Would it be a new trove of data? Would it be some advancement in technology? What, what would sort of be the next thing that you could hope for that would make a big difference? Well, in my field in particular, and in my goal to find another planet like Earth, we really just need, um, I mean, most we think we can solve the problem, but we need new space telescopes that can handle finding an Earth around a sun-like star. I mean, did you know that our sun, I mean, you know our sun is so bright. Today's a very sunny day here, and there's snow on the ground. We have like half a foot of snow still, and the sun is just so bright. But our sun is actually 10 billion times brighter than Earth. If you were trying to find another Earth around a sun, that's 10 billion times. I mean, that's such a huge number. That's 10 decimal places. It's, it's giant. And the problem in astronomy is not that an Earth is so faint. Earth is you know, about as faint as the faintest galaxies we've ever observed with Hubble. The problem is that any Earth, it orbits a star, and it's right next to that star. <laughs> so imagine for a moment, you're trying to find a planet like Earth around a star that's 10 billion times brighter. And right now we have no, you know, we can't take a picture of that because the glare from the star would just overwhelm the entire detector. So people have been working on a very special ways to block out the starlight, to get rid of the starlight, to 10 decimal places. And if I ask you, you know, have you ever in your field or anyone, you know, listening, do you have to do anything to 10 decimal places? Like, no, never. No, I mean, <laughs> once in a while, there's someone who says yes, but on the whole, never. Like you don't measure things if you're renovating your house or you're cooking, you know, you're not measuring to decimal places. It's kind of approximate. So this is a huge challenge. And how exactly to do that? There are a number of ways kind of in the works. But that's the problem we need to solve if we want to find a true Earth twin. I feel like we're talking a lot about finding another Earth-like planet or exoplanet. Do you, do you find that that quest is, is new or, or is something that everyone's always been looking for for, for decades? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, have you heard of the yes. quest, you guys? Is it something <laughs> I mean, of course. But I, I guess I meant it in more of a scientific um, approach. You know, obviously, everybody's like, well, let's find the next planet. You, you, you read old science fiction from the 60s, and it's about inhabiting Mars. Right. But in terms of like a scientific quest. Well, I think we're getting closer. But our scientific quest, actually, it might be of interest to you to know, it's, it's actually shifted. It's shifted in that at the moment, we're not searching for a true Earth twin around a true sun-like star, but instead, we're doing something that's much easier. We're looking for kind of Earth-like planets around very small, very red, very low-energy stars. Uh, and why is that? You know why we're doing that? Because it's easier. It's easier to find planets. All the techniques we use are essentially ratios between a mass 
mass ratio or size ratio or brightness ratio. And if your star is really small, it's much easier to find a small planet around. And if your star is less massive, it's really easy to find a small planet around. And so actually it's just kind of easier all around. So there's a big push now to find um, planets in the so-called habitable zone or Goldilocks zone. That is a planet that's you know, not too hot, not too cold, but just right for liquid water and life. So we're seeing a lot of that now. And that's a big, big, big field. So that's really more like science fiction. Because imagine if you're walking around on a planet orbiting one of these stars and everything's red. Have you ever, you probably haven't done this, but amateur astronomers, they don't like to ruin their night vision. And so instead of like a yellow flashlight or a computer screen, they put like a red plastic over their computers. And when they're outside at night looking at the night sky, they use a red flashlight. And honestly, everything looks red. You'd be walking around on this, on a planet and everything would look red. And not only that, on these particular systems, because the energy is so low, in order for the planet to be the right temperature, it's very, very close to the star. And it's so close that what happens to the planet is something kind of strange, actually. And that is, um, it, it, show, it gets into this um, special configuration where it rotates once for every orbit. So it's day equals its year, and it shows the same face to the star at all times, just like the moon shows the same face to Earth. It's just over like a long period of time, the tidal interaction between the planet and the star make it be that way. But what this means, if we could visit the planet, not only would everything be really red, but the star, your sun, would be in the same place in the sky at all times. Like, how crazy is that? And there's sort of a list of things when you go down it that are just really bizarre. Like, these stars flare. They brighten. Some of them will flare ten times a day. So imagine you're walking along outside, and all of a sudden, your star's brightening by quite a bit, uh, just randomly, and lasts for maybe 20 minutes. So there's tons of crazy things on these stars. If you couldn't flip out your iPhone or your phone, because there's, in these flares also have these high-energy particles that swing by, and they could, you know, damage the electronics. So it'd be a very different way to live. But nonetheless, the planets are still there, and they're easy to find, and there's a growing number of them. It's just naive, I guess uh, this is obvious, but it's naive of us to think that we find a quote-unquote habitable planet, it would be anything like our current setup we have here. Exactly, and yet we still search for another Earth. We're still searching for our twin planet. And that desire is just, it's hard to say why we have it. I mean, I have it, right. a lot of my colleagues have it, and in science fiction, they always imagine that we're going to find another planet like Earth with beings like us. Have you seen the movie Arrival? Uh, not, I have, yes, I have. I have, not have yet, but yeah. Oh, you, you should see it. What do you feel about it? I really liked it, actually. <laughs> I saw it with my son about a week ago. He has a broken ankle, so we're spending a lot of time together because <laughs> used to be he spent all his time playing soccer, and now he basically can't do anything, so... We went to see the movie Arrival last week. Um, well, what I liked about it, the thing that impressed me most, you may, it's kind of funny maybe, but they didn't have humanoids. Like usually, you know, the aliens mm. are just like humans, but with a bigger head yeah. or with just uh, green skin. But in this case, the aliens were just so completely different in the way that they use language and the way that they operated. So that's what I like most. That's actually what I like most about the movie. I was actually thinking about that's that because that's, it's the same behavior, right? If we assume that the other habitable planet out there is exactly like Earth, is the same as assuming aliens have a head and two arms and two legs and, right, and a mouth. And if they, they speak yeah. English. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right. You no, know, I remember in, in middle school, we had to draw, for science class, we had to draw, you know, our vision of what an alien might look like. And everyone did these weird things. And I thought I was being a smart ass. And I just drew a dot and was like, that's bacteria. Um, <laughs> wow. You were like, so, wait, you know what? <laughs> 
course you yeah, did that. Yeah, that was great. You were <laughs> way ahead of your time because <laughs> way, time. way ahead. I love it. Because right now, when we think about finding signs of life on other worlds, that's what we're thinking about. Something's generating a gas. The gas doesn't belong. We can tell it doesn't belong, but we won't know what or who is generating that gas. And it's probably just bacteria. Uh, I have a, a more speculative question. So le- let's say uh, you were to find some evidence of um, alien life. Wh- what next? What happens? You know, the funny thing is we're so fixated on the search that we don't really think beyond, actually. And so I always like to say, you know, it's that's for the next generation. We're here, you know, ramping up our excitement and just working hugely crazy hours and crazy ideas to get just to find these things and to find any hope of sign of life. And mostly we're leaving that to the next generation to figure out what they're going to do next. However, there are one group of people sponsored by the Breakthrough Foundation. And the Breakthrough Foundation is trying to figure out how to send a probe there. And this probe wouldn't land on the other worlds. And it would have to go basically to the nearest star. But they're trying to figure out a way to find send the tiniest little space satellites. They're so small, they'd be like a square centimeter. And they would, ex- this is going to sound really science fiction-y, and it, it has, it does sound that way, but to send up like thousands of these little tiny things and accelerate them to one twentieth the speed of light using lasers. And these what? things would, yeah, these things would go through space uh, very quickly. But even going that quickly, our nearest star is still four light years away. So it would still take 20 years to get there. And so when we get there, but the problem is it would have no way to slow down. So it'd be zooming by these planets very quickly, but nonetheless be able to snap photos. Not at the level to see any life crawling around, but just to see what's what's on that world. And that's amazing that we're even at the point where we can conceive of doing this. So if you've read recently, I don't know if you read Nature or Science, uh, I get the I actually get the magazine and I was just reading it yesterday and they had a really nice, it was actually the best article on this topic I've seen on this very specific star shot, it's called. And they summarize it all and they had a nice graphic. So I do encourage you to read it and see what it's there. One thing that we do in exoplanets is we think big and we're ambitious and we have big dreams. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with us today. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, you're still here. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copycuts.